Welcome to season six of the Charity Matters podcast. I'm Heidi Johnson, nonprofit founder, lifelong helper, and your host. I've been interviewing modern day heroes for over a decade with my blog, and I'm so excited to be sharing these inspiring conversations on our podcast. Join me as we learn the challenges and stories, innovators, entrepreneurs, and modern day heroes who set out to solve the problems of humanity. Have you ever thought about donors as investors? Well, today's guest has. In fact, Larry Gilson, the founder of Focusing Philanthropy, has been taking his investment strategy to changing the world. And I'm really excited to share this inspiring conversation about how he's using his skills to make the world a better place. You're not gonna wanna miss this. We're so excited to have Larry Gilson today of Focusing Philanthropy join us. Welcome, Larry. Thank you for being here. Well, I'm really been looking forward to this. Thanks for inviting me, Heidi. I'm so excited because I think that um, people look at philanthropy in a lot of different ways. And I love that you have very fresh, I think, a unique and fresh perspective on something that has been around since the beginning of time, which is helping one another. But why don't you start out by telling us what Focusing Philanthropy does? Sure. Um, well, you know, we start with the observation that Americans are the most generous people in the world, philanthropically. Um, and um, uh, But our impression, and I'll say my wife's and my own experience, is that um, the, the philanthropic um, activity hasn't always been the most fulfilling, rewarding, or confidence-inspiring. Right. Uh, people, people are, their impulse is to be generous, but they also want to be confident that what they're contributing actually makes a difference. And uh, and the more people give, I think the more they have a series of questions that are in their heads, whether they articulate them explicitly or not is, is different, but I think they wanna know um, uh, if I give dollars to such and such an organization, um, can I be confident that it'll actually be used in the way that I intend and that they promise? Uh, will I get good feedback on what's actually happened? Right. In the nonprofit, I use incremental dollars effectively, uh, or will more dollars just uh, result in more activity, but not necessarily more meaningful impact? Um, how do I choose among organizations that are all announcing themselves as being active in a particular space? These are, you know, these are challenging questions, but the answers take quite a bit of time and effort to 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 come up with. And most people are busy doing other things. So we're trying to fill that gap to answer those questions, to give people the confidence to, um, to make informed choices and to have the sense of satisfaction that comes from getting good feedback of real impact that they're helping to accomplish. So that's, that's the niche that we're trying to fill. Well, I love that because I think that you are right. I think that sometimes it's a black hole and we have 1.6 million nonprofits just in the United States alone. And people don't know where to start. People don't know um, how to give, how to sort it through, how to filter out where they can make the most impact. And um, and you're taking a lot of that off people's plates and making it a lot easier for them to do it. But I'm I'm always, I think my favorite part of um, of these conversations is figuring out how you got to this point and where you started. And obviously I know a little bit about um, about your background, but when you 
when you learn about taking kind of an investment strategy um, to philanthropy, it makes a lot of sense knowing what you've done in the past. So why do you explain what happened or what was the impetus to starting Focusing Philanthropy? I mean, what were you doing that you said, you don't just wake up and say, hey, we're going to we're going to do this. There's a series of things that happen. So why don't you take us through a little bit of that journey is sure. or was. So, um, well, I think that the, the precipitating event was that after 20 years of having founded and run an investment firm, um, I sold the firm. And, and um, my wife and I both felt that that was a moment when we, you know, frankly, we had some more money uh, and also some more time. And, and we wanted to be more thoughtfully philanthropic than we had the time to be previously. So um, I thought, okay, with all of the the philanthropic activity that takes place in the United States and and certainly in in Los Angeles and in in California where we live, um, uh, there would be lots of resources available that we could could tap. And we just would simply find um, groups that were identifying compelling giving opportunities, were monitoring them in a competent and professional and confidence-inspiring way, and we're presenting them to potential donors uh, who would use that that research as um, source material for their own decision making. And so I spent almost a year looking for this hypothetical resource. And I I kept looking because I couldn't believe I wasn't finding it. So it's not like there's nothing out there. Of course, there's there's lots of stuff. But my expectations were high because I was looking for something through the same lens as the investment decision making tools that my firm had built over a span of decades. And um, and so when I wasn't finding what I was looking for, um, I started asking friends who were like in a similar situation. And they uh, had a similar lament about their own experience. Um, and um, and um, so that was, that, was, that was interesting to hear. Uh, by then I'd start- what year was this, Larry? Well, this was- what, what, what? This is uh, 2009, 2010. Got it. Okay. And so so my first thought was, well, uh, I'm not finding what I'm looking for, so I'll I'll hire a person, and that person can, like, help uh, my wife and and me, you know, make better decisions. Right. Uh, But when my friends said that they, you know, uh, when they heard that, they said, well, if, if you hire somebody, can we ride your coattails? And, you know, get the benefit of their research and your thinking as well. Well, that was kind of revelatory. Right. And so I said, okay, maybe I should do something more ambitious. And that became the genesis of focusing philanthropy. So for the past 11 and a half years, we've been a version of what it was I was looking for before the, before that period. Right. Um, and we now have a team of eight people. So we're not like the Gates Foundation, but we have a, a team of eight people that do the research, the exploration of potential giving opportunities, the, the, the ongoing monitoring, the, uh, the crafting of giving appeals, the reporting, um, the honest you know, and accurate and timely reporting. We do that for our own family and also now for about 450 other families around the world, most of them in the United States. Um, and um, we're not a retail philanthropy. You know, we, we, we relate primarily to relatively high net worth families. 
Right. Um, because we value the ability to have individualized relationships with each of them. Just really what we were looking for as a family, you know, when when I was doing the search that that predated focusing philanthropy. So 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 really we're answering the questions that that my wife and I were asking. Right. Back then. And well, more there's a people lot of seem work. to be responsive. Right. And there's a lot, as you know, I mean, you've created a full-time business out of this. There's a lot of work that goes into this. It isn't just, I just want to give and I'm just going to blindly throw money at something. You want to know what you're doing. You want to know who you're impacting. You want to know how, how, where your dollars are being used. And I think that, um, once upon a time, you know, uh, donors or investors, whatever you want to call them, uh, were, uh, I don't want to say not as educated, but it, it was a different landscape. There wasn't information out there. You, the internet didn't exist. You kind of blindly sent a check and trusted that it was going to go where you needed to go. But that's, that's change, right? I mean, we can, we can see and visit and be and zoom and, and, and be in the spaces where we want to give and see where our money's going. And so the world has changed a lot um, mm -hmm. since the old the old model. What do you I, think I, think the I think it's actually oh, great news. I think it's great news that this change is underway because, uh, you know, if we can just move the needle toward more impact by even a few degrees, the magnitude of the dollars that will be deployed to achieve life-changing human impacts, which is what we're focused on, right. um, that's incremental to what otherwise would have happened, is can can change a lot of lives, you know. So we've been at this for eleven plus years. Uh, during that period, we've raised and deployed about one hundred and thirty-five million dollars. Wow. Um, and but but that's not the most important scorecard. The most important thing, and the reason why we're all doing this kind of thing, is to help people. And right. and we conservatively estimate that we've changed the lives through the programs we've supported of over 13 million people around the world wow. over the last 11 years. And the trend is great. They, so that's year over year, significant growth in people helped, dollars raised, donors participating. Um, all, all of the metrics are, um, are encouraging. So let's talk about that impact. Talk to me about some of the organizations where you invest your dollars, where you invest these 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 $135 million? Where have you primarily invested? What kind of why? What are you seeing? Um, where you're in and 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 what's the process using where mm -hmm. uh well um we have a relatively small portfolio. We have only 14 or 15 nonprofits in our roster at any one time. Uh, it's very labor intensive to to be able to consider alternatives, vet them, choose among them, and then relate to them in a true partner like way. That's that that's work, and it takes a bunch of effort. So we have to have a small portfolio. About half of our nonprofits are domestic, and half are international. Uh, so I'll give you an example of a, of an international and a domestic one. Okay. Um, the we, we never start by saying, oh, that sounds like a really interesting nonprofit. We'll look at that. We start with an observation uh, that we think um, um, deserves uh, kind of exploration of something that might lead to a giving opportunity that would be compelling at its scale. So one observation is that over half of the world's 
extremely poor people have something in common aside from poverty, and that is they're farmers. They're farmers. They're living on a little piece of dirt in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia or Southeast Asia. They're planting their crops. They're harvesting what they plant, and their family is mainly eating everything that they harvest. So they're really not even creating a surplus that allows them to to sell into the market and generate cash profits. And in a bad season, they're running out of food before the next harvest. And in many languages, this is referred to as the hunger season. Wow. So that's the life circumstance for over half of all of the world's poorest people. Wow. So we thought if we could do something to address that population in a way that was scalable, um, that would be very worthwhile. And so I'll skip the intermediate steps, but the, the program that we partner with is called One Acre Fund. Uh, when we started with them uh, at the beginning of our of our activities in 2012, they were working with about 40,000 farmers in Western Kenya, and they had jumped the border into Rwanda and Burundi and were doing a little bit of work there. Now, uh, 11 years later, uh, we've been a catalytic partner of theirs for all the intervening period. They're now working in nine countries working with one and a half million farm families where the average uh, farmer has six relatives that they support. So you do the math, that's nine million people who are permanently out of starvation poverty as a result of this progression in in impact that, you know, that they have achieved, but we've been uh, backing. I have chills everywhere. That's, that's extraordinary. So, so what we're doing with them is, is first we help them scale dramatically. We, we were the catalytic funder for their expansion into six of the nine countries in which they're now operating. Um, and we helped them build their core program, which is increasing the agricultural productivity of these small, these small uh, hardworking subsistence farmers. So they have surplus they can sell into the market. They can diversify their diet. They can afford to send their kids to school. They can maybe put a better roof on their house. They can they can they can make some progress as a family, right. uh, and then as that progressed, we then moved to. And I love that you're giving them the poles and not the fish. Exactly, they're they're the doing the hard work, right? And they're learning the skills, and we're giving we're giving them the tools, the support, uh, and 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 the the network of resources that enable them to be successful. These are incredibly hardworking people who want their family to be in a better place. And we're giving them a means of, of advancing that objective. Right. You know, uh, and when I visit them and we've all on our team, we visited them in, in and talked to the farmers in, you know, all the countries in which they're active. It's an incredibly motivating and inspiring experience to hear their vision of their future and how that has changed over time. Well, so, and giving someone and giving the gift, not only obviously of food and education and, you know, Maslow's basic needs, but giving them hope for the future. I mean, that that's a huge gift. It it's is immeasurable. It is. It is. And, you know, and it, and and it's making a difference. We, we see it on the ground every day when we're there. So so as this progressed and the scale grew dramatically, the question we asked was, uh, okay, what's the next step? What could we do that would help these people take another step up the ladder? And the answer to that, after a lot of exploration, is tree planting. 
So we are involved right now in a massive tree planting program that will, by 2030, involve over 6 million farmers in eight African countries planting 1 billion trees. Wow. Uh, we are completing the first phase now. Uh, the 250 millionth tree will be planted in the, the spring of 2024. And we know how to do it now. We've really learned a lot over the intervening years. And there's no doubt in my mind that we will hit the billionth tree planted in 2030. So, so that's an international program that we're extremely excited about. Uh, and I think it's the largest uh, income augmenting program in Sub-Saharan Africa and one of the largest environmental programs in Sub-Saharan Africa because a, a billion trees uh, uh, sequesters a lot of carbon and also right. helps at the farm level with avoiding erosion and reintroducing nitrogen into the soil. It has a whole bunch of salutary effects uh, at, the, at the farm level as well. So that's an international program in which we're um, very active, centrally involved. And I'm, I'm actually meeting with the leaders of this program globally who are going to be in our offices uh, tomorrow and Thursday. So uh, so we're all over this and and we're they're visiting us here. We're visiting them in Africa. Um, that's 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 one of our international programs. And talk to me about your domestic impact. Yeah. What are you doing here? So, so again, the starting point for us is an observation that we think lends itself to potential impact. And the observation uh, in, in one example is we have many industries in the United States that are very large employers and have sort of pyramid-style employment structures, lots of entry-level positions. And we've seen it all in the press. They're having a lot of trouble filling those entry-level jobs. And yet there's millions of unemployed or underemployed Americans who, for whatever reason, aren't competitive for those, those career track entry-level positions. So what about that? Why? So we went and talked to people who were the leaders of some of those industries. And so, for example, in the IT industry, we talked to CEOs, uh, HR directors, and we said, why aren't you hiring these people? They're, they're motivated. They want to work. Um, they'll help you diversify your workforce. You said that's a goal. Why aren't you hiring them? And they said, well, you know, we're not in the training business. Um, if they come with, with the skills that we're looking for, we would give them an interview and they'd have a good chance of being hired. We said, okay, well then what are the- But that's a chicken and that's a chicken and the it egg is, problem because it it's their first job. They don't have the they skills They don't have the yet, skills. <laughs> and so we said, well, can you tell us what skills you're looking for? And they and they literally reach in a desk drawer and they pull out a list, list of, of technical expertise that they're seeking. And then we say, well, okay, well, how do you learn that they have the skills? What, are the, what evidence are you looking for? And they said, oh, well, that's easy. There's national credentialing exams. And if people have passed the exams in the relevant skill areas, they're, they're definitely going to get an interview and they're probably going to get hired. Okay, that's all interesting information. We could take all of that, and we did. And then we started to look for nonprofits that taught the target population we're interested in helping to learn those skills and pass those exams and be uh, present themselves effectively with potential employers. So that's that's how we got to the group that we support on IT training, which is called Perscolis. When we started with them, it's a similar story to the international one. They were in five cities. They started in the South Bronx. They were in five cities, uh, graduating about a thousand students a year. We've helped them grow. They're now in 21 cities. This year, they'll graduate 4,000 students on the way to 10,000 graduates 
uh, in the next few years, and then the ultimate goal of 50,000 graduates in 25 cities. And just to give you a sense of what the impact is, uh, these are people whose pre-training uh, income is somewhere between zero and $20,000 a year. Wow. So this is these are poor Americans. These are, yeah. After 15 to 18 weeks of training, depending on which curriculum track they're in, 85% are graduating and getting hired at a starting wage of between $45,000 and $50,000 a year in a career track job with benefits. So that we, is what we would call real impact at scale. Bringing and, back the middle class to the United States. Yay, go Larry. I love yeah. it. <laughs> and, 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 and also it's helping industries that the country depends upon find the workforce that they that they need. And as we get feedback from the employers after these students are hired, we're hearing consistently that these are some of their most loyal, effective, and hardworking people. They're getting regularly promoted and they're being put in positions where they are then helping recruit the next round of students who, who, who graduate and come from the same neighborhoods where these people live and work. So, so, you know, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a feedback loop here that's really, really powerful. And we're now, based on that experience, we're doing the same thing in the healthcare sector, where we're helping to train uh, people to go into entry-level jobs. Over half of entry-level jobs in the healthcare industry do not require a college degree. These are pharmacy techs, right. sanitation techs, radiation techs, certified nurses assistants. And, and we know there are millions and millions of vacancies and more to come in that industry as well. Right. So we're, we're learning as we're going and we're trying to ex leverage our experience base and our donors demonstrated enthusiasm for these types of, 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 of approaches that are life-changing and are dramatically scalable and are addressing root causes of, of poverty and need. I mean, I, it's fantastic. That's amazing impact. And that is, well, and I have to say, like being executive director for a nonprofit, I have a love-hate um, relationship with the word impact sometimes because I'm doing these grants, I'm doing these reports, I can say how many students we've served, I can, I can show, you know, the end product we do. I run a youth leadership organization. Well, how do you measure leadership? How do you measure that this child who came in sixth grade is now in college and leading this, this, and this, but the impact, the way you measure the impact sometimes with some of these reports and grants is, and to your donors is, is difficult in, in with what I do. And so um, I love that you have taken really measurable things and you have a very clear impact, which again, in it's it's a it's a tricky thing sometimes. You know, sometimes impact is is very clear and sometimes impact is a little harder to gauge. And so I love that those are beautiful impact stories. Mm -hmm. So what fuels you to do this, Larry? I mean You've you've had a very busy life. You were in the White House at one point. You've had a successful career. You know, what fuels you to, to keep going? You could just be like sitting on a beach. You know, you could just be kicking back and just saying, okay, it's it's been a good run. I'm tired. I'm good. Hmm. What makes you want to keep going at this? Well, I don't think I'm 
wired to be sitting on a beach uh, for an extended period of time. Um, <laughs> I like I like the beach. I live in L.A., right? Uh, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't grow up poor, but I was a scholarship student in college um, and um, and, you know, and and had, you know, was had jobs along the way always to, uh, you know, uh, augment what what um, what I otherwise would have had available. Um, and I've had the opportunity to see and meet uh, quite a wide variety of people over the span of many years, both when I was in the government um, and otherwise. Um, and um, I really appreciate how incredibly fortunate I am uh, to have born, been born uh, into the family, you know, that I that I grew up in uh, in the United States, and at the time that I just happened to show up. And I had nothing to do with any of that. Um, you know, I, I hope I've I've capitalized on the opportunities that have been available to me, but I'm I'm alert to the fact that that the opportunity set for most people in the world doesn't look like mine. Right. And and the ability to be helpful, not to solve everybody's problems, uh, not to deliver the results, but to create the opportunity for people to be able to maximize their potential and to pursue things that are interesting to them and worthwhile and rewarding and to see a prospect for a better future for themselves and for their families and their communities. This is this is pretty motivating. And I know I'm not saying anything that's unique or even that distinctive, but uh, the more you do it, the feedback loop is pretty pretty satisfying. And you, you you realize you can apply the things that you've learned over a lifetime right. in a way that um, can be useful. And um, and when you realize that and you see the that it's actually happening, you want to do more. And and this is really I'm describing not just myself. This is our this is our donor base. This is these are the right. people who aren't like um they're not like I would call it look and look at me donors. You know, they're I can help but their name is their name isn't on a building. Probably not on a building, right. or it's not on a building that we help them, you know, uh, right. link up right. with for sure. You know, but um, you know, the fact is we can do this, you know, when you realize you can actually make a difference. You, you can do it in a in a way where real people with real lives, with real challenges, but also real hope can lead a better life. And and that and you can facilitate that. We we know how to do it. Right. Uh and 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 and, and therefore we should. Amen to that. Wouldn't it be beautiful if the whole world thought like that, Larry? I mean, so it's just we are we're so blessed to live in this country. We have so much opportunity that other people don't have that I think um people don't think about the opportunity that we have. We have incredible opportunity here. Yeah. And, you know, we have we have, here's something that we have that I think about often. We have the luxury of choice. You know, especially if if you've had some financial or professional success, right. we get to decide what we're going to do. Right. And those choices can be personally rewarding and enjoyable, right. but they also can be helpful and useful. And to choose to do something that's useful, not at the exclusion of everything else, 
but as a central thread running through your personal agenda. Right. That's that's a luxury. I, I remember I was I was walking with a, a, a amazing young guy who founded a nonprofit and grew up in the biggest slum in Africa, the Kibera slum in Nairobi. And I and we were talking about uh, what his circumstances were and when he was growing up. And he said he didn't have the luxury of any choice. This is what he said. His goal was to survive till the next day. He needed to find food to eat today so that he could be around tomorrow to find tomorrow's food. And he said until he could break out of that and be in a, in a, in a state where he had the luxury of thinking about something more ambitious and more long-term, that's the life that he lived. And we're not, that's not our world. That's not the life that we lead. I doubt there's anybody who's, who's listening to this who, who is, whose circumstances described by what my friend Kennedy O'Dady was saying to me in Nairobi. No, absolutely not. So we not. have the luxury of choice and, and we should make good choices. We can do it. We can help these people. We can, we, can, we can feel a sense of satisfaction and accomplishment. They can have a better life. So why wouldn't we do that? Well, and it is an addictive feeling. You, I mean, I, my husband's like, it would have been so much easier if you were addicted to something else other than helping people. Because helping people, you just, you all, I mean, all the nonprofit founders that I've ever interviewed, they all started out thinking, if I could just help, you know, one person, if I could just help this guy, if I could just make sure that the next person, this doesn't happen to the next person. But what happens as soon as you help one person you're like, you know, I bet I could help too. I bet, oh, they have a family. I bet I could help 10. I bet they've got, and before you know it, you know, you have this huge community. You now have an international community. You have this huge group here of the millions of people that you've served. You just keep wanting to help more. That's what happens. I mean, it, it it's a beautiful thing, but it expands. Um, and we get gifts in ways, we get paid in ways that are way better than financial. We may not, people who are in the nonprofit space who, who help people, um, we we have a really incredible opportunity to witness humanity and the best of it. Um, we see the worst of it sometimes also, but we also see the best of it. And it is a privileged spot to be. I think I think we do. And, and you know, what we're talking about is, is, you know, you could say this is work. You know, I mean, in order to to be able to deploy uh, philanthropic capital, in other right. words, to make contributions, uh, you know, should be thought of, in my opinion, the same way as deploying other forms of capital for other investment purposes. We want a return on investment. Our, you know, the scorecard is different, but it's it's work to be able to do that in a really effective, confident, inspiring, and highly impactful way. It, take, it takes effort. So really just to maybe to, to, to close where we started, um, what Focusing Philanthropy is trying to do is to take some of that work and do it on behalf of the donors. Not all the work, but some of the more labor-intensive stuff that requires maybe a skill set and a level of, of, um, of uh, allocation of time uh, and expense that's, that, you know, that not everybody uh, is, is either prepared to or has the uh, ability to deploy, but but the residual. So that makes it easier, I would hope, for other people to uh, to make the remaining decisions, which is the choice. What right. what should they support? How do they? What are they expecting as a result 
Uh, what feedback are they getting? And then how do they continuously refine their giving to advance their philanthropic objectives? And I guess I should say that Focusing Philanthropy is a free resource to all of our donors. Uh, our family covers all of the costs of, of all that we do. Um, so it's a friction-free uh, uh, resource for uh, the growing number of, of donors who use us as a as one of the sources of, of information and input and feedback for their uh, their giving. So, you know, uh, I would hope that, um, you know, we'll continue to grow. More families will find us to be a useful resource for them. And that as a result, they and we can have more impact uh, helping more people who were just dealt a tough hand, uh, but um, but can accomplish more if they just have the opportunity. So is that your dream for focusing philanthropy? If you had a dream for the organization, what does that look like? Well, you know, after 11 and a half years, I think we've we we have a generally pretty good idea of how to maximize the impact, how to find compelling programs to support, uh, how to present those in a way which is hopefully motivating and credible and honest to our donors. Uh, and we know that uh, the programs we support have the ability to help far more people than we are helping yet. So what's the missing ingredient? I, I, it's more money, more support. And, <laughs> and is it so, always? Is it it's always, always that, but, but, it's, but it's true. And we, we know the correlation between dollars and, and, and results. And we know that more dollars can, can yield more results in, in the two examples that uh, I mentioned and and you know a dozen other programs that are equally powerful in their life changing uh, impact. So so if we can just uh, you know we we don't run an ad in the paper. You know we don't take inbound suggestions of nonprofits that we should right. consider looking at. We don't have the luxury of the staff to do that at scale. Uh, but if there are people who want to look at a well vetted list of compelling opportunities that address a wide range of human needs. Um, we hope they'll 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 look at our our website and and uh, if they want to hear more, we're happy to have a one-on-one -on -one conversations and and that they'll they'll find something that um, their their family would would find useful. I love that. So Larry, tell me, I mean, in 11 years you've been doing this work, 12 years, what life lessons have you learned on this journey? You, you've been all over the globe. You've, like you said, you've met a lot of people. You've seen a lot of poverty. You've seen a lot of hope. Um, share with us some of the lessons you've learned about, about life and people in this journey of focusing philanthropy. Well, um, Reading the morning newspaper can be a little bit discouraging in a you typical think? Way, right? <laughs> um, and uh, and that can, you know, and, and, and there's this tsunami crashing over us of pretty pessimistic stuff. And it can affect your worldview and your sense of your place in the world and the prospects of for your kids and your grandkids, right? Okay. So a... Very important antidote to that, I think, is what comes from, personally, I would say, comes from my involvement in the philanthropic world. Because there's a couple of quite dissimilar populations of people who I now interact with who I wouldn't have otherwise. 
that uh, give me a basis for like, I think genuine hope. I don't mean just wishful thinking, but I mean like evidence-based <laughs> uh, uh, basis for seeing some real upside. The one is the people who are being helped. You know, these are not folks who are uh, sitting back looking for a handout. Right. These are people who want to work. They want to approve themselves. They want their children to be able to go to school. They want their daughters to be able to go to school. Right. They want they 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 want to be safe. They want to be healthy. They they want their children to be able to stay in their communities that they grew up in because the, there's opportunity in those communities. That those are traits which I see evidence of every place, every place. So that's a population that is hopeful, and it, it changes the uh, kind of the superficial cliche shorthand that um, is too often propagated about people who are in a tough spot. The other group of people who I um, find motivating and encouraging are the people who are the young people who are incredibly capable people who run, sometimes founded, but often run these nonprofits. These are people who could be successful in anything that they chose to do. And they are not choosing to be to maximize their personal income. Because you know? we don't do it for the money, because God knows we don't get paid. <laughs> right. You know, and these are people who are making life choices right. that are um inspiring to watch. And the level of capability and creativity and imagination and problem solving and persistence that is reflected in their behavior uh, is is really inspiring because these are people who are you know are 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 demonstrating the positives that they're living in, um, yep. and and so so that's. Those are, I would say, I don't want to call them revelations, but those were those are really positive, regularly reinforcing uh, observations and experiences that that I've had the benefit of of having over the last dozen years. Well, in the second category, it's why I interview them every week because I call them angels among us. I mean, you know, we we to your point, the news is a, is can be a really scary horrible place to start your day. And, um, and I know, and you know, how much good is happening around us every day. We just don't look in the right place or people aren't shining a light on it, which is why having conversations like the one we're having right now are so important for people to be reminded of all the good in the world, because there is so much more good than they, we are seeing in the media. There is good happening everywhere. And that's why these conversations are so important for us to see all of that. Do you think you've changed, Larry, since you started this work? Do you think this work's changed you? Well, I'm 12 years older than when I started. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Uh, you know, I, I think inevitably. I mean, all I think all life experience changes you. You know, I um, and uh, and if you know if you're if if you start with a positive attitude, I don't mean a superficially Pollyannish attitude, but if you say, well. Let me give this a shot and let me learn from it and see what I can do. 
Um, you learn a lot along the way and you become, I think, a more rounded and hopefully a more interesting person than before. Uh, you know, my network of friends and 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 acquaintances uh, is now so much more diverse than it than it was, you know, a dozen years ago. Diverse geographically, diverse economically, diverse uh, in terms of age of, you know, of people. I mean, I have, I have what I now consider to be close friends who, you know, live all over the world and and are doing things that I um, I only like maybe read about in a book. Wow. You know, and um, and and that's an enriching experience. And and frankly, as you get older and older, that the, it's easier to have your world get smaller and smaller. You know, there's a tendency to kind of focus on your your uh, like kind of actuarial peer group, right. you know, people who are more similar to you in their life experience and and their current activities. Um, and you know, so I can in the last year I've been uh, in uh, you know Rwanda on a farm, uh, you know, talking to. Uh, you know, farmers about how it's going and how the crop is going this year, you know, uh, and, and, you know, I've got, you know, people coming to see us this week who are, you know, who are leading nonprofits from, you know, places that I never had visited um, prior to this, this experience. And, you know, and this is a network of relationships that is really extremely um, provocative and um, uh, super interesting. At a personal level. Well, I think it's absolutely amazing. You know, I people say, what can one person do to change the world? And uh, Larry, you've certainly moved the needle for a lot of us. But I think I hope you've inspired people. You've certainly inspired me. And I love what you're doing, focusing philanthropy. So tell us how we can support you, where we can go to find more to learn, how um families can find more about focusing philanthropy that want to potentially be an investing partner with you? Well, uh, we have a very creatively named website, which is <laughs> focusingphilanthropy.org. Um, and that is a place to uh, see all of our currently active campaigns. We run matching campaigns each year. Uh, in support of our uh, our programs, some are multi-year, some are single-year. Uh, so that's a good place to start, um, and that also has so, a way to contact us through the website. Um, I, I would suggest that people start there. Um, in a few weeks, we're going to be publishing our year-end giving suggestions uh, that uh, everybody on our mailing list um, receives. So. If you make contact with us and say you'd like to see that, and 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 we don't we don't bury people under under solicitations. People are I think overwhelmed with all that they get, but we do uh, send out occasional notes saying here's something that we think is really important that you might find interesting, whether it's domestic or international, um, and um, uh, and and so that I think would be a good a good uh, starting point. Uh, and I'll mention just one other thing. Um, we we uh, have a close relationship with the New York Times, and there are two holiday giving suggestions of, of programs that the Times runs, and we partner with with the Times on both of those. 
Uh, Nicholas Kristof, who is a prominent uh, columnist in the New York Times, writes a giving column each year around Thanksgiving. And we partner with him to uh, support the selection of which groups are, are featured in that uh, and um, in the uh, promotional efforts surrounded. So you can look for his column in the New York Times. It'll probably come out the weekend before Thanksgiving. And then the Times institutionally overall has a um, their own um, giving appeal at the end of the year. And this will be the first year that Focusing Philanthropy will be their overall partner in modernizing and reforming that entire New York Times holiday appeal effort. That's going to be fully announced uh, in the middle of November. Oh, and that, that appeal will run through the end of the year. So that's an additional kind of path that we're connected with that um, might be interesting to some of your listeners. That's fantastic. Well, Larry, I cannot thank you enough for sharing your story. I love the way you your mind and the way you've approached something um, that we all try to do, but I love what you're doing and the difference that you're making in the world. So thank you for inspiring us and thank you for giving us something happy to listen to and focus on today. So it's really been a treat. Well, thanks, Heidi. I appreciate your interest and and, um, inviting me on your program. Anytime. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Charity Matters Podcast. I really enjoyed talking to our guest, Larry Gilson, about what it takes to start a business that truly changes people's lives. I think Larry's comment about hope was so inspiring and true. To learn more about these modern day heroes and entrepreneurs, or if you'd like to reach out to us, visit us at charity-matters.com or connect with us on Instagram at Charity Matters. If you enjoyed our conversation, we would love it if you shared this with your family and friends. And please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. But more than that, thank you for caring, for believing in goodness and being a part of our movement. You are exactly what the world needs more of. Remember that together we can make a difference. One small act of kindness at a time. Charity matters. See you next time.